We're back with another roundup of the week's headlines in the world of defense acquisition. And as usual, I'm joined by Matt McGregor. So let's get right into our first story, which is Russia's increasing military flights around Alaska are a strain to our units, top U.S. commander says from Business Insider. Quote, as a matter of fact, the highest activity we've seen since the fall of the Soviet Union occurred last year. We intercepted over 60 aircraft last year in and around the Alaska ADIZ, or Air Defense Identification Zone. We monitor more than that, Crumb said Wednesday, after adding that F-22 fighter jets, early warning and control aircraft, and KC-135 tankers are typically involved. I, I just thought this, uh, this article was pretty interesting because I, it just made me think about the tempo of Russia being able to send a bunch of probably lower-end aircraft into our um, airspace to force us to scramble. That was interesting at, that they're using F-22s. It can't be all the time, but maybe many of the times to do the intercepts. And that seems like a, if that's putting a strain on our resources, then we really need to think about what the future of great power competition looks like. Yeah, no, I think you're right. <laughs> using our top end, very limited number F-22s and burning valuable flying time to just intercept Russian units. I'm not so I'm not sure they're low threat or they're low capability Russian assets or not. I guess we'd have to maybe dig into that, but they may actually be their top end aircraft. I'm not sure. But the fact, yeah, that we're using 22s to, to escort them out <laughs> is, seems like we're just bur burning those platforms up. We don't have that many of them. So yeah, the, the generals tried to put a good light on it. Sounds like by saying we're getting some good training out of it. But it, it, yeah, it definitely doesn't sound like it's sustainable. It, it does make me think, though, that a lot of this is Russia just preparing its approach for how to operate when, as the Arctic is opening up more and more, and they know that the U.S. is going to start staking claims or building up its presence in the Arctic. And it's, it just seems to me like this is a precursor to how, how they're going to operate and how they're going to challenge us. In a similar way that, that China is challenging us in the South China Sea with those trade routes. So I think Russia's in bad shape right now economically. And this, I personally just think they're doing some of this to get their, get their act together when they start to need to defend their buildup in the Arctic, which I actually did looked up some stuff. And they actually, let's see here, they built, yeah, so they've reactivated. I saw, I think it was in that same article, actually. They've re reactivated around 50 Soviet air installations in the Arctic to have air and sea launched missiles basically to host those. So sounds like, yeah, sounds like they're, sounds like they have a plan here. So the country that's in economic stagnation is the one running the, the great power ragged in terms of, of sorties. <laughs> yeah. It, it is a yeah. good question of what kind of aircraft are trying to penetrate us airspace. The picture on the article was like a turboprop bomber or something like that. It looked like <laughs> the, that looked like uh, it was probably pretty low um, cost per flying error relative to an F-22. And again, we only have what 180 something and we lost yep. one at Tyndall, but yeah, it seems like the same thing that China's doing right with Japan, apparently. Japan's having to scramble more and more F-16s to intercept the Chinese. And especially with China, it feels like the exchange ratio in terms of production of stuff and getting physical stuff moving is not favorable in, in like the combined U.S.-Japanese kind of industrial base. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Yep. Let's move on to the next one. FVL, don't pick the tilt rotor, V2 test pilot tells Army. 
in breaking defense. Quote, while tilt, while tilt rotors offer superior high altitude cruise performance, that's less relevant to future high intensity warfare where army aircraft will have to stay low to avoid advanced anti-aircraft defenses. Also, the compound helicopter is more agile at low altitude, hovers better at high, at high altitudes in hot weather and can maintain tighter formations. So I thought, so this was actually the former test pilot who was a Marine writing, I think this article, and it was pretty interesting because he literally came out for one solution over another in terms of, in terms of a competition that's ongoing right now. Now, I guess he's probably not in the service right now, so it's not all that unusual, but what's your thoughts on it? No, I have to admit, after reading the his opinion, uh, I definitely became a little bit more of a fan of the, of the, it's not the, the Sikorsky, what do they call it? What was the, the compound uh, helicopter, helicopter, twin blades on top, which is actually pretty interesting. I, I'm not really sure exactly the performance advantages it gives. I, I guess it does get you more agility faster, and, but it's an interesting solution. I wonder what the cost dif- differentials are between that and the tilt rotor. I think, yeah. I think it probably is less because the tilt rotor has a lot of complexity. I remember reading about the V2 and it definitely makes sense in terms of the flying characteristics because remember the tilt rotor, some of the big accidents that happened were because you actually need to maintain some forward speed as you're landing, especially in certain certain temperatures and things like that. So it makes sense that the compound helicopter, you can more reliably use it uh, at different altitudes and particularly... I think they, I think you made a compelling point about the fact that helicopters are going to have to be able to operate at really low altitudes to stay out of, out of the threat range. So that might be just by itself, a pretty compelling argument. I also talked about it being able to, yeah, the defined X is that compound helicopter being able to carry more and having increased power margins at altitude. But maybe the thing that was most coming to me was the fact that the V-22 training, which I did not realize requires pilots to go through basically three different training reg- regimens, which it, which it starts with the helicopter. Then they have to go learn how to fly um, a regular aircraft, regular plane. And then, then they move to the tilt rotor. So it adds like weeks of training to be, get, get pilots up to speed. And I think that even that by itself, given how many they want to uh, build that by itself might be, maybe the deciding factor is just the training, the, the different, the increased training demands that this puts. So I don't know. Pretty compelling. Yeah, definitely compelling for uh, for the helicopter. Yeah, that, that was kind of my thoughts too. I was like, I'm actually somewhat persuaded by this brief article. <laughs> but I think <laughs> the V-22, when that came out of the Iran incident back in the early 80s, I think that was just, I don't, maybe they weren't thinking about the same kinds of anti-axis area denial type technologies. Now, they did put a ton of requirements on that first v-22 to be more survivable than any helicopter that ever existed before it so maybe that's some of the gold plating mentality as well but maybe the v has had its day i'm not really sure for the missions that are longer range and potentially less threatening and you don't have to do very quick landing those things will work quite well but they're also pretty high operating costs yeah so the next one here i think you'll find of interest Blue Origin Protest NASA Human Landing System Award from Space News. Quote, Blue Origin filed a protest arguing the agency moved the goalposts of the competition and claimed that 
In addition to not giving companies the opportunity to change their proposals to reflect the agency's reduced budget for HLS, it improperly evaluated aspects of its proposal as well as one by SpaceX. NASA requested $3.3 billion for HLS in its fiscal year 2021 budget proposal, but received only $850 million. So what's really going on here, and we talked about this a little bit last week as well, uh, Blue Origin, they're on the, the national team, right, with Lockheed and Dynetics and a couple other kind of traditional primes. And SpaceX just came in like under half of their bid. And they stole that away from, from actually, it was interesting because they also had two awards go for the crewed mission. And this one's kind of like more complex. And they're now just going with a single Blue Origin was saying, this is really high risk. And, but the real thing was they moved the goalposts, I guess. Jeff Bezos's other company, Amazon, AWS, sued or protested the Jedi Award because there was some kind of fairly obvious impropriety potentially going on. And once you get political with it, then those things may tend to stand up. This one, again, it seems like it might stand up, but I feel for NASA because they had a plan. They thought it was going to cost a certain amount. Congress told them, you must create the plan and we will approve it. And then they give them like what? less than a third third. and then they're saying go execute the mission (laughs) and so what do they got to do i got this solicitation on the street i got to move fast and i got to make a choice and i guess some of the it was kind of almost built into the system (laughs) that like an issue like this might occur so there's a couple things i don't understand though which is when you do a source selection you know source selections especially ones this big they're very regimented very disciplined i don't understand how SpaceX was given an opportunity to update their proposal where Blue Origin was not. That's what gets me because typically in a source selection, you go through, you do an evaluation, you get to a competitive range. If you have some offers who are not in that competitive range, you might down select and say, we're only going to go forward with these ones. And then you do a final, another evaluation and do final proposal revision. So final proposal revision is almost, it's a man, almost mandatory part. I can't imagine that NASA wouldn't have done it. In that final proposal revision, you think that Blue Origin would have known what the budget looked like and that they would have had an opportunity to update their proposal. And so that's where I just don't understand where they say somehow SpaceX did it and they did not have an opportunity. Or was it more that SpaceX was monitoring the budget and keeping track of where things were going and they realized, oh yeah, we need to be, we need to be a little bit lower here to get this because they don't have the NASA doesn't have the money. And then maybe Blue Origin didn't track that. I, I don't know. I am very confused. I'm, I'm very interested to learn more about this because it just doesn't seem right that somehow SpaceX had an opportunity that Blue Origin didn't. But but it is interesting. I do feel like Blue Origin is taking a very political tack versus going after as strong of a source selection, like a GAO type claim, because they their case is all around like the how deep the supply chain is in terms of not just being vertically integrated, but being spread out nationwide as supplier network. So it does sound like that's not a compelling case to GAO. So that they're making a little bit of a political argument. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but I definitely want to know more about what actually happened. Yeah. It wasn't my impression that SpaceX had a chance to revise their proposal. It's just that they came in relatively low and Blue Origin didn't feel like they had the opportunity to revise. It says, if NASA had notified Blue Origin that the 
source selection officials assessment of available out year budget would preclude an award absent a reprice blue origin proposal blue origin would have welcomed the opportunity i guess maybe they the spacex kind of understood what was going on but it's hard for me to believe that a team that includes uh lockheed martin just had no idea what was going on in the budget true, this program true. yeah that's a good point <laughs> and yeah. so i i'm not really sure exactly if what happened there either but i guess we're gonna we'll find out and it'll be interesting at least they're not claiming like anti-competitive like dumping or something like underpricing <laughs> right that yeah. would be that would be a funny one to make there was one thing in the article that that did stand out to me though not regards to the protest but something that blue origin is alleging that i hope hope isn't true which is that the starship is incompatible with other u.s commercial launch vehicles further restricting NASA's alternatives and entrenching SpaceX's monopolistic control of NASA deep space exploration. I certainly hope that isn't true, that that Starship could not actually be be used with other launch vehicles. That, that surprised me. I'm well, definitely it, interested to know more about that. It was my impression that it needs a super heavy. It needs, if Boeing actually created the SLS, potentially that could have taken it up maybe if it's just in terms of the weight, but like they're waiting on the super heavy Falcon to launch it. And there's no other rocket out there. That's a super heavy in, in that range. Is that not okay? Right? That's what you're viewing as incompatible. Yeah. Cause blue origin did have that. Yeah. They were working on a larger rocket. Did they back off that entirely? They didn't back off. It's just like one delay and one cost growth after another. Yeah. And I think they've yeah. sunk, you know, more than $8 billion into it. And they keep pushing the goalposts and it's not clear when it's, and even then I hear it's going to be like a billion dollars a launch. If I were SpaceX, I'd be like, like, even if they did succeed, I'm not going to pay that price to get the thing up there. I guess it'll be the okay. government well, it, I mean, that would be putting it up there for the Artemis program. But that, if that's the case here, then Blue Origin saying that it's incompatible is really mis- a misleading way of saying it. So that, that okay. That, maybe, maybe that makes maybe sense. Maybe Maybe it was like, maybe the new Glenn could have boosted it up there, but there is some kind of technical incompatibility. I'm not sure. Well, I'm sure we'll hear more about that in, in the weeks to come. <laughs> yeah, there'll be no less than 10 GAO reports on that one. All right, so the next one here is Point Blank throws hat in ring to design U.S. Army's Bradley replacement from Defense News. Companies like Metal Ops and Point Blank are the underdogs, but there's room for them to play as the service plans to choose up to five teams to produce preliminary designs. The service plans to spend $4.6 billion from F on the OMFE, the optionally manned fighting vehicle. So it's turning to industry input earlier and more than ever. So I guess it's interesting. It's good, right? That these kinds of, I guess you would put them as second tier type companies are also trying to submit bids for the OMFE, whereas the, the round one just got one bid and it was delivered late. And so, right, it, it didn't work out quite the way that they wanted. But the redesign has been pretty innovative in terms of keeping requirements quite general and having more of a filtering down select process. I'm pretty stoked. I, I still think like it's going to be hard for them to outcompete the big guys that are going to be able to do potentially all the most requirements that will be coming from the army, which probably adds a, a significant amount of kind of like custom or overhead type work but 
again, I'm pretty excited about OMFB. I'll be interested to see if they can push something out there in the time. And I think the time is what's going to be against them because I think they got, got five years to getting getting something fielded and they had that timeline put up, but, and like most of it was in these preliminary phases and then the actual build phase was relatively short. Yeah, no, this was always meant to be a, and like a rapid prototyping, rapid fielding. And then of course they had that issue back where they only got one bid. They had to rethink their whole strategy. I feel like they may have gone a little overboard. I have to admit that if I was on that program, not want to have to evaluate five teams at PDR, that is that's just going to have to be time consuming unless they, unless they do a really streamlined, you have to actually go demonstrate something or something really clean to make that where it doesn't just become a six month to two to one year uh, delay, essentially trying to figure out who they should take to the next stage. So yeah, five teams, a lot. I'm with you. I like to see some of these smaller companies get the play. I, I did look at point blank website. They have not bought in this space. They've done a lot with armor and different things. They, they do some like covert vehicle stuff I saw, but uh, they are partnering with somebody else too, to do more of the, more of the bending metal stuff. So it's interesting that they're the prime and yeah, it definitely seems like they're stepping out of their space a little bit there. Maybe the worst case for them is they get the PDR. They, they don't win, but they, they make such a compelling case for some of the capabilities that they have that the whoever whoever does winds up winning maybe pulls them in and gives them a piece of the pie so maybe this all works out in the end for everybody even if the smalls don't win at all yeah one of the things i i wonder is also like for the primes i bet you they would just submit a proposal that has a bunch of proprietary stuff and doesn't really follow the most (laughs) potentially because they know that the government is like they're in a pinch and they can't update those proposals and so they're gonna have to just select one of them and these companies put a boatload of irad into it as well maybe either the second tier guys glob onto it and maybe even push them forward and give them that alternative and say look we were as open as as you wanted these guys weren't or potentially that forces the primes the regular primes to play that way for fear of their proprietary standards in the contract solicitation being negatively evaluated yeah, I certainly hope. I think I, I do feel that the army, just from things I've seen recently, that the army is really understanding the importance of most to keep competition because historically they've always been relying on one vendor because they get so locked down. So I hope they learned their lesson on this one. And that one of the things to look at PDR is the kind of interoperability or the modularity. One thing right with the OMFE is it's optionally manned. So that just screams to me that you're going to have to be able to pull in different autonomous features to make it as effective as possible. And that's something that could evolve over time. So hopefully at least if maybe there's some proprietary stuff on the hardware side, hopefully they are incorporating MOSA on the software side so that they're not, not reliant on whichever prime they, they go with. So yeah, that will be interesting to learn more about the, the specs on that as they get closer. It would have been cool if they had a, a software prime also playing. That would have been that would have been a very interesting <laughs> concept there. But I think this goes right into the, um, another article here: Army briefs industry on future air and ground standards from breaking defense. Quote: The common modular open architecture will establish unified standards for a wide range of future air and ground vehicles, allowing them to share components. 
The goal is a single set of meta standards linking all these different types of components and vehicles, but is likely to be a crushing blow for manufacturers that rely on vendor lock, selling tightly integrated proprietary tech that competitors can't upgrade. So here's more on just like the standards. It's, it's always funny, like the thing that a system wasn't designed for then becomes the thing that everyone like focuses on, right? <laughs> and now it's just like these standards and interoperability and it'll be interesting. There's just tons of things. They listed a bunch of army efforts that are falling under this common modular open architecture. It'll be interesting to see like whether these things cascade into a total joint one or whether there will be that federation that is able to persist due to various technologies or just the difficulties of getting to that monolithic structure that inevitably um, seems to come. I, I do feel like in the past, we, I mean, we've been talking about MOSA, right? For, I don't know, it's got to be at least 15 years, if not more. We've said we should be doing this, but I do feel like we've evolved. I think DARPA and, and other Air Force RCO proved out how important this is and how you can institute it into a large system. And actually, even some of the legacy platforms have had little pieces of MOSA kind of added to them, like the U2, uh, for instance. So I, I think maybe we've evolved to the point where we can get this right. And it sounds like they're sounds like they're on the right track. They just have to make sure that it's it's on the it's on the right places. If they have to sacrifice MOSA, they're not going to sacrifice it in places where future upgrades are going to be needed on a regular basis and you're going to have to, to do massive upgrading. So it sounds like they have thought about this with, with EW and the sensor architecture and the, the airborne capability stuff. So they've pulled from, they've pulled from some of the things that have been in the army already, like victory. They pulled from the stuff from the, the Navy, like face, and they've, you know, pulled some, probably learned some lessons. I don't see, I don't see the air force UCI in here, but looks like they've probably pulled some lessons learned from the air force side too. So yeah. I'm rooting for them to get most of right on this platform. Yeah, definitely. We'll see what happens. So another program here of interest, the B-21 Raider is on time and on budget. That's a miracle. Popular mechanics. So that's a miracle was in the title there. Quote, this is actually from Representative Adam Smith, who's the Hask chair. He recently said that the B-21 is, quote, on time, on budget, and they're making it work in a very intelligent way, end quote. While the B-21 has slipped a tiny bit, the first Raider was supposed to be to fly in December 2021, and that's now scheduled for sometime in 2022. The Air Force plans to buy 100 B-21s, but it would really like 220 of the bombers. So that kind of actually gets to exactly what we are talking about last time. So they wanted to buy 100, or that's in the plan, but they're going to go for 220. And you actually got Adam Smith kind of singing the B-21's praises, which is a stark contrast to how he's been talking about that. Yeah, no, I think the Air Force RC so far, it sounds like they have done this one. They always said at the very beginning of the program that this one was, was using mature technology that had been proven. It wasn't, it was always considered a lower risk effort, even though it was an exotic new bomber. It sounds like they've actually been able to accomplish what they said they would. Of course, I think the, the article made the point that you don't always know until it actually gets out into the fleet and it starts getting some fly, flying hours under it. Uh, sometimes you, you learn all sorts of things once the plane's in the air and it, you go, oh, okay, that, that the structure that you thought was had all the right stresses all of a sudden experiences some issues or some of the sensors that were supposed to work together don't work together the same way in different environments. I think we still have a lot to learn about 
if there will be any issues, if it will be as, as much of a success as it seems right now, but yeah, definitely, definitely encouraging. So oh, I think Eric, did you notice the cost too? It looked like it was like, I think I saw 660 million in there. Did you see that? I, I did see that. And it's not clear yeah. whether they're talking base year dollars or any dollars yep. or what kind of dollars it should be the base year and whatever the program is. No, it should be quote and otherwise for a series, a whole production run of aircraft. So if it was a puck or puck. So that's where I was. Yeah. Still would like to see the, the SAR on this someday. So we can get that, get, get the final word on that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So the next one here, the Marines are already ditching their young RQ 21 blackjack drones from the drive. Quote, at present, the Marines have around 21 complete RQ-21 systems, which typically consist of five drones, as well as various supporting equipment on the ground. We need to transition from our current UAS platforms to capabilities that can operate from ships, from shore, and able to employ both collections and lethal payload. And I think when he says collection there, he's talking about ISR as well as lethal payload. It's interesting. The Marines have been quite agile and able to divest from numerous things. We talked about the tanks recently, but the RQ-21 wasn't exactly an old legacy system, but I guess it wasn't, you know, meeting their needs. The article did say, though, that it was being used quite heavily. So there was definitely a demand for it, but potentially it was just limited in certain ways in, ter- in, in terms of having payloads that could put bombs on people for one, and then the ability to operate from various different types of platforms or domains. I think the Marines, they're becoming one guy, Calm Navops, which has a great blog, Navy Matters. He's been bashing the Marines for a little while saying, okay, they have no firepower and they have no armor. Where are they going to be like this super lightweight combat group? And he just, he, he has a particular point of view. He also sees the benefits of a battleship type construction as well. But can, I think they can take risks because if they fail, there's some redundancy there, potentially. I'm all for it. Let them go off and do good things. Yeah, I think they're trying to find their place to force design 2030 was probably partially due to where they saw themselves operating in terms of the Pacific that they needed to be more lightweight and mobile to respond to some of the some of those environments. I think there was another article that we get, we'll get to that actually has a new weapon that that might actually be something they can add to their inventory that allows them to do some counter ship stuff. But I actually thought this one when I I watched the videos which Sometimes I don't get to go you know, as deep into some of these articles and watch all the videos and stuff, but I actually did on this one. I was just really curious why they were abandoning the system when they had gotten it in such good shape. I think they had just the CFOC a couple of years ago. So I actually watched the video of the RQ-21 and then I watched the video of this new thing that they were looking to go to. And it's like night and day. This RQ-21 is like a, a real pain in the butt in terms of the amount of infrastructure you need to launch it. It's, it's a lot, a lot of, of equipment. And then you need to, in order to recover it, you have to, it actually, you recover it from the air. You have to have a bunch of separate equipment. So it, it definitely was not, if you look at the force design 2030 and the idea of moving to a lighter force with, you know, emphasis on ex- expeditionary and distributed ops, it definitely did not look like it fit there. And they, they even talked about, they had done an exercise in the last couple of months where they actually had the V2 bringing that equipment to shore. And they must've just learned some stuff there where they were like, no, there's no way we can do this. We can't lug this equipment all around for 20 systems. And this new one literally just launches from the back of a truck and lands almost a SpaceX rocket. So yeah, I think this is a classic example of they went all in on something 
And then they started to do a little bit of market research, what we've been talking about. And they went, oh, wow, there's a lot of better stuff out there. <laughs> that's my take. Yeah, no, I think that's all that I'm glad you watched the video. I didn't watch the video there, uh, but I think that's a really smart take. And I guess it came out, I think they started on it more than 10 years ago. So like drones have come a long way in that time. And it's just scary. I think that you might have kind of oversight looking at that and seeing them and being like, you're not getting like the use out of it. You're not like amortizing your investment. And that wasn't part of the plan to go to a new system and retire that one so early. It's like, why don't you go down there and you go launch one and recover one and figure out the logistical tail. And then you go try this one. Yeah. That's my justification. <laughs> but okay, so here's the next one that's on that same vein that you were, I think, alluding to. Quote, well, this is the title. Here's our first look at USMC's Nemesis. NSM being launched from an unmanned JLTV. <laughs> so there's lots of stuff in there, but the Naval Strike Missile being launched from an unmanned joint light tactical vehicle. And that's from Naval News. Quote, NSM is a multi-mission cruise missile designed to destroy heavily defended maritime and land targets. It is the U.S. Navy's over-the-horizon weapon for littoral combat ships and future frigate. The Marines will use Nemesis to support the U.S. Navy from shore against enemy ships. NSM has an operational range of 185 kilometers, 100 nautical miles, and a high subsonic speed. It uses inertial GPS and terrain reference navigation and imaging infrared homing with target database aboard the missile. So that's a little bit about more about what makes the Naval Strike Missile fifth generation. But I thought this was also pretty interesting that the Navy and the Marines decided to take this, uh, this missile and put it on land and also in an unmanned JLTV. I, it's funny that they went straight to the unmanned JLTV instead of just like launching it from a JLTV modded. But potentially that might have to be there for safety or other reasons that are tactical as well. But this also makes me think if the Navy and the Marines think this is a good idea, maybe that has some bearing on this Army Air Force debate over the long range strike. What's your thoughts? Maybe there, there is more of a mission for uh, long range fires. And, and I guess after that one conversation we had, I went and I looked at the, the map of the South China Sea and East China Sea. And you can start to see that if you wanted to deny the Chinese Navy, which hopefully we'll talk about in one of the other articles there about how they're expanding their fleet. But if you want to start to deny them areas of the East and South China Sea using this type of lower cost anti-ship type missile that you can put pretty much anywhere, it starts to get them nervous. And I think that's probably a really good thing for our allies and for us when we're in that region is to have things like this and things like one of the other articles about the, the new Navy missile six and its capabilities, but to start to deny them some of those areas that they might want to operate freely in. Yeah, I think this is great. And I like also the fact that one of the things that in that same article I was talking about is that this is actually a product of Raytheon's kind of building it, but they're teamed with Norway, which I, I love that. I love that bringing our allies into this because we're going to be, be in some of those same fights and in some of the same fights in the Black Sea or in the, the North Sea. And so the fact that they're already using it with Norway's Navy and the Poland, Poland's using it for their coastal defense squadrons, I think is, I think is great. So no, this looks really promising. I didn't see a unit cost on it. I am curious about the unit cost, but hopefully we can find more details on that. 
Yeah, I'm not as upbeat on the allies thing because it just felt like Norway, they, the company just had the technology and the US didn't, right? Like we didn't want to use them to for the rocket motor on the AMRAM. We basically had no other choice. I think it's probably similar here. It's just if we could have done anything like this, even if it cost 10x what it costs you, we would have done it in America, but we didn't because we couldn't. I don't know. I go, I drive to Bill Greenwald and I think we need to bring our allies more into no, our No, I agree. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm yeah. just saying that we, the only reason we did it in this case was because we had no other choice. It's not like this is part of some broadening policy to include our allies more. I don't think it is. I think we stumbled into that rather than that being like part of any kind of plan. I don't know. I think Raytheon, I feel like Raytheon could have probably come up with a plan to to build it, to rebuild it from scratch, but they probably knew it would not, it wouldn't have been compelling uh, cost numbers there for the Navy or the Marines. So they probably, they, yeah, you're probably right. They're probably somewhat forced to team up on this one. It does show that they're looking at this with the right perspective and not, I could have seen a few years ago where they would have, right. We would have just started this thing from scratch and not even looked or encouraged our, our typical defense primes to look overseas. So I don't know. I take maybe a little bit of hope from that, but yeah. ITAR, the, the regulation that <laughs> stops Americans from knowing how far they are, how far behind they really are. A mutual yeah. friend of ours uh, likes to say that. But on a similar vein here, the Navy destroyer teamed up with drones to hit a ship 250 miles away, popular mechanics. Quote, the John Finn acting on targeting data provided by uncrewed air and sea platforms struck a simulated target at more than 250 miles. The use of drones for targeting purposes will allow the Navy to detect, track, and destroy enemy targets at a long distance without exposing friendly ships to enemy sensors. So again, like this, I think this was all part of the same exercise that we talked about last week, but I love that they're actually doing these live fire exercises. They used an SM6 in this case, and it hit a target 250 miles away. We're just going to need to get those numbers much higher, I think. Like, I think China, we don't even have anything in the intermediate range in terms of cruise missiles, and China has several hundred of them now. We've, we were abiding by the treaty, but I'll be interested to see whether new missiles start hitting the longer ranges. But again, I don't want to dampen away from the achievement that the Navy had here. Yeah, there is, I guess, the one missile that I would point out that was a, it was actually a joint Air Force-Navy uh, project in conjunction with uh, DARPA was the LRASM. And right. I, I'm not sure. Long the range, range standoff. No, that was the LRSO. Yeah, that's the LRSO. That's the, the, the nuke one. But this one was, yeah, I thought this was long range, but I don't can't remember exactly how long range, but maybe that one. Okay, here we go. Yeah, they were, they reduced its size to a thousand pounds and they got the, they increased the range to a thousand miles. LRASM, what's LRASM? I don't know if it's being produced i think it might still be in the end of its development yeah it's i think it's still on the end of its development but for integration and all that stuff but the uh, no here it is no actually it was integrated into the b and then it's actually been integrated onto the super hornet so yeah so rasm might be one of those gap fillers that could be the longer range one but this is really nice that sm6 the, the navy's the navy's been using this for like different applications and I feel like they've probably gotten it to it with at a good affordability rate because they because of the fact that they have so many different applications for it, and they I also I just really like the idea that 
they were able to integrate. This kind of goes to the whole JADC2 thing, right? Like they were able to integrate data from a bunch of different sources, different drones, and actually allow that to be their their targeting, integrate that into their targeting data as the missiles flying because the ship is moving. So they're going to have to probably track that somewhat real time and, and then be able to get that missile on target. So I just, I love the fact that they were able to adapt something they already had. They were able to use drones in creative ways and achieve an effect that they, that was a real capability gap. So I don't know, it's pretty, it's pretty promising. Yeah. I feel like one of the Navy's top points there is to not <laughs> express it in the way that the Air Force has been with JADC2. Maybe it's just, we're doing it, but we're not like tying it to these structures that invite this level of oversight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. Oh, uh, be the better way to do it. Yeah. So next one I want to move on to is sticking in the naval world. China simultaneously commissions three warships on Navy anniversary from Defense News. Quote, putting into service a nuclear powered ballistic missile submarine, a guided missile cruiser, and an amphibious helicopter carrier on the 72nd anniversary of its Navy. Chinese President Xi Jinping attended the ceremony. So I guess they're making a big deal here that they're getting three warships underway at the same time. And China's been undergoing this dropping ships like dumplings, right? Like a big naval buildup. <laughs> I guess this, as we're talking about, this is the kind of thing that makes China scary in terms of their ability to actually just build things quickly and get it done. Like we want a hospital to go up, it goes up quickly right now. I think a lot of people used to say the, the workmanship was shoddy. You're not getting much out of that. I think they're proving that a lot of this stuff is actually quite high quality and it's getting more so every day. Definitely, I think this is a sign that the U.S. needs to figure out its supply chain and just like the manufacturing of real things. And hopefully... I feel I've been hearing recently more and more of these folks that were at a company, they got a bunch of money in the Silicon Valley world, and now they're looking for a bigger mission or the people that just had more experience at places like Tesla or SpaceX now willing to move on and start their own ventures. So I'm actually bullish on America getting out of um, these kind of mom and pop like shops that were built in like the 50s, 60s, 70s era and, and moving on to something that's a little bit more modern, a little bit more fast and, and streamlined. No, I agree. I go back to the book Freedom's Forge, where we basically created shipyards in a matter of months and we're producing ships out of them. We actually got ship production down to, to days because we optimized and we, we made it a focus. I'd love to see us re-energize some more shipbuilding yards. I feel like that is a weak spot for the U.S. And we just take way, way too long with the ones that we have. Yeah, definitely scary. I, I, one thing I took away was the fact that they have eight, eight of these guided missile cruisers being constructed in these two shipyards. And those shipyards are also building the 52D destroyers at the same time. So they're like, they have definitely gotten more efficient at, at building ships in general, but they've also gotten more creative in how to build multiple ships at once in the same shipyard and stuff like that. So I feel like there's some things for us to learn here. And definitely, this is definitely something to <laughs> to be afraid of in terms of how they're building up their fleet. I guess the question is, this kind of goes, I think, to the point about, is China building this up to be a regional power? Or are they building it up to be an international power? And as you start to see things like amphibious helicopter carriers and 
guided missile cruisers and things like that and ballistic missile submarines, you start to go, yeah, this starts to feel more like a blue fleet than, than, than a regional fleet. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, we reported, I think a couple of weeks ago that the PLA Navy was actually going to cancel its fifth and sixth uh, carriers. But I was talking yeah. to Thomas Sugar and had him on the podcast and he was saying like, don't trust that source. But <laughs> He didn't have any indication that was actually happening. And he called the, the author out <laughs> a little bit as maybe untrustworthy there. So that's interesting. I, I think if they move forward with the, the carriers, then definitely I think you're you're right that they're looking a lot more like a blue water Navy. But Thomas Hugard also said something pretty funny where he was commenting for all their talk of like super swarming and autonomous, China's sure bending a lot of metal. <laughs> yes, they are. But we always knew that that was their advantage, a straight up production. It's the other part that we should be like worried about. Like we know that they can bend metal and of course they're going to be doing it. We should be scared that they're doing that and simultaneously hitting innovation at the edges. Yeah, yeah. They're actually like chewing gum and walking at the same time. Yeah. And we're, we're thinking they can only chew gum or walk. And they're like, no, we've got... We- yeah. yeah. It's, I think it's even hard enough for us to chew gum or walk. <laughs> like we can't even do one. <laughs> it's like you would expect Definitely. with the budgets, it's, we shouldn't be having the same readiness problem. We should be like able to feel the larger force structure. But again, it's hard to compare with China because of what resources they have and how do you do those conversions? How many real resources do they have available and then what's also the capability of each of these things that we can count? Obviously, America, advantage still America. In my mind, it's just that in the near future, we should be worried if we don't change our ways in terms of keeping ahead. I know we're going to get there, but I think one of the things that plays into this that is going to determine, I think, whether we you know, can respond to this kind of challenge is what we do with our legacy fleets, our legacy, not just the ship fleet, but, but our legacy aircraft, all the legacy platforms that we have in our inventory that are no longer maybe up to the GPC challenge. How do we retire those? When do we retire those? How do we, re, you know, how do we get those, take that available money and invest it in the right things to get after some of this? I think that is really the determining factor about our ability to respond. Because when you look at how many platforms we have and the amount of money we spend on O&M, and things like that. China doesn't have that, right? That's one of the benefits of building from scratch is you, you don't have a huge legacy fleet that you have to maintain at the same time you're building new ones. They're just building a lot of new stuff. I feel like that's our biggest challenge and how we handle that will be something to watch over the next year. Yeah. So moving on to the financial news, Biden budget delays blows up Hill's defense schedule from defense news. Quote, Adam Smith, warned that the White House's sluggish release of its budget plans are endangering Congress's ability to finish budget work before the start of the new fiscal year, October 1st, 2021. That suggests Washington will have to deploy a stopgap continuing resolution to avoid a government shutdown. Data over the last three decades shows a ripple effect. When a budget has been more than a week late, defense appropriations have been on average 110 days late. So (laughs) I think it's funny when they say if the budget's been more than a week late, then it'll be 110 days late. It's, it's going to be late no matter what. We Actually, a couple of years ago, they were on time. I think that's only happened two or three times in the past like 20 years. But this is, I think, where we talk about all the time. If you had budget portfolios, then the services would be able to make trade-offs in the year of execution and based on the previous budgets continuing those forward. So re- continuing resolutions wouldn't harm national security in that respect if you had portfolio budgets. <laughs> it's just that all this mm-hmm. programming and lining up specific pr- 
programs and outcomes multiple years in advance. And then the delay that really like hampers you not to mention on new starts. So I just feel like we got to get the word out. If you hate continuing resolutions, (laughs) portfolio budgeting is your friend. Yeah. Portfolio budgeting, strategic level budgeting, like you said, where if the average citizen went and looked at the budget docs for the DOD and how much paper there was, I just think it would just, you know, blow everyone's mind to the thousands, you know, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of pages uh, collectively between all the services and DOD. It's just not a way, it's just not the right way to run a business. And if a big part of why it it takes so long to get through that is because of the fact that staffers have to, to drill through that data to do the due diligence that they've been tasked. And that just takes a really long time to do. And then there's all the conferences and all the stuff that has to happen. And because it's so nitty gritty, like you said, it's just, there's not a easy way to, to burn through it. But if we were operating in more portfolios with strategic, looking at the strategics, giving a little bit more, giving more flexibility to the services for the individual detailed little capabilities that might contribute to the strategic capabilities, then we wouldn't necessarily have to, to go through this pain. But yeah, I, do, I also do have to laugh just a little bit that a week, a, a, a budget being submitted a week late results in almost three and a half months <laughs> on, on the tail end is uh, that, that one struck me a little funny there but. yeah it has nothing you know it has nothing to do with that it's just like <laughs> other things are going on and that's completely fine like that's congress's prerogative to have those hard debates but i also feel like when you have the specific line items of oh congressman x knows program y is in his district and then program z is in someone else's di- district and we're trying to do all this horse trading that takes a lot of time and effort, right? Like people protecting their interests and causing a lot of delay. Whereas if you had more of with sequestration, what, what made that work was like, no one knew who was going to get the cut. Everyone's getting cut like the same amount. So it's not like you're there's losers and winners. There's only losers in that, in that case. Um, Yeah. Yeah. This and this year should be interesting. I feel like there's going to be some pretty tough things to work through this year. So be interesting to see how they handle that. In terms of, I think part of the reason why the budget's so late is because if you've been tracking kind of the things coming out from the DepSecDef on the DMAGs, the Defense Management, Management Action, Action Group, Group. As, yeah, they've been meeting and, and trying to work through some of the trade-offs to get after some of this innovative stuff. They're probably going to submit some things that are going to be hard to swallow. So I think that might be at least a little bit of the reason for the delay is they're probably working through how do they propose this in a way that could be palatable? How do they message this? And what? how do they clearly demonstrate the trade-offs that were done? So I think there's probably a lot of good work uh, going on behind the scenes with, with the DMAG group. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out there and how Congress, how, how receptive they are to it. Yeah. I I was let in on a little secret that I won't let up here, but the there will be something interesting in terms of, of the budget submission this year. And, and how far into the future it looks that might go along with it. But yeah, they, they were talking about, oh, the Trump administration was not being supportive and that that led us to be delayed. And then we also want to make, you know, these big strategic choices. So that's going to delay more. And now Congress is like blaming the department for being slow. And it's just, I feel like it's going to be one of those things where we can blame someone else. So we'll just take our sweet time. There's, it, they're just like, they're signaling to everybody Oh man, it's late. So 
we're going to be late. So they're just saying, <laughs> don't expect something until calendar year 2022, basically is what they're signaling to us. Don't get your hopes up because that's the best thing that can happen right now. That's why we need biennial budgets, Eric. Nah, man, biannual budgets are the wrong way. I, I just I don't understand. I know you agree with them, but I just feel like that's just doubling down like on- We need portfolios, yeah. need portfolios with biannual budgets. Like you need them both. Yeah, they can't, can't be one or the other. But if you have the portfolios, then the whole budget build process isn't so onerous. So I don't see why you need it necessarily anymore. But the whole point of the biannual budgeting is, man, we've made this really hard and it takes really long. So we got to just- do it once every two years, which forces us to lock down plans even longer. So like the fit up has to be super stable for that to work. But it's, I feel like biennial budgeting is doubling down on principles of waterfallness and long range, long planning timelines. Yeah. I just think if you have portfolios and you have agreement on the strategic capabilities that need to be in those portfolios, that you almost like revisiting it every year is just like overkill. And you could spend that year, even if you have portfolios, you're still going to have the pain of the budget process. So why not, why not spend that year getting up to speed on the Marine Corps' new methods of operation and go on some tours, different production facilities and see what's causing delays or what's causing issues. Or I just feel like Congress could have more valuable stuff at their time rather than sitting there and looking at budgets that Probably if you're using portfolios, probably haven't changed that much. And yeah, that's always been my argument. I back some time a little bit. I'll, I'll just push back on you. I'll let you push back on my pushback. But of course, like again, with the if you have a portfolio, then the natural inclination is always you take the last year's budget plus or minus small incremental changes. And that's how budgeting used to be done before the 1960s with the PBBE. The PBBE yep. is I reevaluate everything based on these plans and programs. And like even more recently, Esper kind of started the zero-based budget review. So everything yeah. is put up for debate every year. But if you yeah. have a portfolio, then you're not go. It's not everything's not up for debate. What'd you do last year? Okay, why do you need a little bit more, a little bit less money? And it's a much simpler process. I'll I'll give you that. If if that if we get it down to that level where it's just like little tweaks or little adjustments, yeah, then I agree. You probably don't need it. Okay, so. We veered from the news and let's get back on news. I'll just, let's just wrap up with this one. Army fields first anti-aircraft strikers in just three years, breaking defense. Quote, the maneuver short range air defense or MSHORAD strikers are armed eight by eight vehicles fitted with an auto cannon and a missile launcher capable of firing hellfires or stingers. But after witnessing the deadly impact of Russian drones in the 2014 invasions of Ukraine, the Army realized it needed to urgently rebuild its short-range air defense shorad units, particularly in Europe. So here's a nice example of America coming into a conflict in 2017, kind of realizing that the legacy equipment is not holding up so well against new concepts of operations and new technologies, but then actually very quickly being able to field a new answer to that. And so we got to give it to the army for, for fielding this. It's not like they're doing a full build of a new system. They're taking strikers and, and they're modifying them, but it's a pretty significant mod modification. They did it in three years from start to finish or from start to first fielding. So I guess we can, that's something to be happy about, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think I'm also happy to see more mobile 
anti-aircraft units because I feel like a lot of our competitors are in the, or have these mobile launchers or in the mobile launcher business and can have a certain amount of agility that we tend to, we've tend to prefer, at least it seems in the past, more fixed sites where we can, we can operate out of. But yeah, I think based on this, the army people that are operating these things seem to think they're, they're, it's a pretty good upgrade. And definitely you could see in both Europe and the Pacific, the need for something that is agile and responsive to take down some aircraft that might be uh, threatening the area. So yeah, this looks like a, looks like a win for the army. Yeah. But it does seem a little bit like overkill for drones potentially. And I'm not really sure exactly what level of drones they were talking about, whether those were like smaller drones or like MQ-9 equivalents, but I'll be interested to see what happens with the army's uh, counter UAS program. Uh, there's a lot of hype going into it. I've heard some skepticism about what happened in the requirements process as it got transitioned to the army, but I guess it's good that there's a suite of alternative capabilities that are being developed for these issues rather than let's just go for the, the one thing to rule them all in terms of countermeasures. Yeah. And a, and a cannon and the Hellfires and Stingers are both pretty, pretty cheap missiles. So yeah. Yeah. Hopefully they, yeah, they have different, different capabilities to take down different threats. Hey, hey, Eric, I feel like we have to talk about this one about the IP addresses. I just find it, I find that one so, I don't know. It's strange. Really, strange, but not, it, and also I almost feel like it might make like the most sense once you get all the details, but I love, I just love the speculation about, <laughs> we basically created like a secret UFO base or something. Yeah. I'll, I'll just read that one off real quick okay. because I, that one was like a whole rabbit hole. I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to get into this because there's a lot of stuff. I know here, it's but, just too fun. But yeah. So the Pentagon reportedly hired a small company to manage its IP addresses to find security issues from KTLA. Quote, the military hopes to assess, evaluate, and prevent unauthorized use of DOD IP address space, said a statement issued Friday by Brett Goldstein, chief of the Pentagon's Defense Digital Service, which is running the project. Some cybersecurity experts have speculated that the Pentagon may be using the newly advertised space to create honeypots, a machine set up with vulnerabilities to draw hackers. It's deeply suspicious, as says one industry <laughs> observer. So it's... It's not just that they have a small company here that's managing all the IP addresses and potentially creating these honeypots. There's just like some kind of weird things about the company itself, how the company is named and related to some kind of scams from 15 years ago of who these guys are and what business they're doing. <laughs> I don't know. What, what was your view here and what are some of the, the big kind of mysteries in it? Yeah, it sounds like this company for one existed before. And so it came back recently, but then the, some of the people involved, it seems actually were recognized experts. And then at the end of the article, the thing where it started to more make more sense to me is that one of the current contracts that it has is with DARPA for, this is one of the companies associated with one of the people that's on the contract is for harnessing autonomy to counter cyber adversary systems. And that it's contract, that the contract description says it's investigating technologies for conducting safe, non-disruptive and effective active defense operations in counter space. So that one starts to make me think to develop some of this technology, sometimes you don't need like a huge team. Sometimes you just need some, uh, a small group of really smart computer people who understand the cyber threats and how to counter them. Maybe this is just one of DARPA's projects that 
they, they told Brett Goldstein at the defense digital service, Hey, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. You should probably, you should probably use them. And they got them on board for this new task. So I don't know. It probably is going to make a lot of sense once the details come out. Yeah. When I saw that they were working with DARPA, I was also like, DARPA has technical chops and they're probably able to evaluate whether, like, they're not just going to be spending money on nothing or unless there's some kind of scamming going on there. But I didn't think that was what was going on. And I think you're exactly right. Like a small team of really smart people can probably make a big impact, especially in, in the software and the cyber world. And potentially it's just these other industry guys that are just like, man, they got like a really important job and I wanted that job. And I could imagine how you could grow that business into all sorts of things if you had that job. And why don't I have that job, right? (laughs) Maybe that's what's going on here. (laughs) I think so. All right, cool. That wraps up the week's acquisition headlines. Thanks for joining me, Matt McGregor, and we'll be back next week. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.